to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am honored to be joined by one of my professors, uh, Dr. Sabitha Palai Friedman. Uh, She's an associate professor at the Center for Human Sexuality Studies at Widener University in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is where I've done my master's of education, and I'm currently doing my PhD, and she's been so supportive and amazing. She is also a psychotherapist and certified sex therapist and approved supervisor. She works with individuals and couples in her private practice in Philadelphia and has over 25 years of experience in providing individual, couple, and sex therapy. Dr. Palai Friedman frequently speaks to healthcare professionals, cancer survivors, and patients about cancer and sexuality and presents nationally and internationally on wide-ranging topics related to relationships and sex. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Glad to be here. What brought you to this specialization? Well, I used to um, volunteer um, to uh, to give information about sexuality and uh, and MS. I initially was um, invited to do a weekly uh, phone uh, consult uh, for MS survivors, and then I got a phone call from a cancer group, a survivorship group, and they asked me to speak about sexuality, and then it became. Uh, you know, kind of my job. I I started working with more and more groups and I learned a lot by volunteering. So um, I have given talks to cancer survivorship groups organized by the American Cancer Society, Gilda Club, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, Young Survivors Coalition, Unite for Her, um, and a prostate cancer support group. So, and you know, I know we're going to focus on cancer stuff, but how does how does something like MS impact people's body and their sexuality? Um, quite significantly, because first of all, when you're diagnosed with a chronic or a catastrophic illness, just the diagnosis can bring with it a lot of feeling of body betrayal, sense of loss, and sadness. And you know, and and when uh, I, I hear people you know, when they're diagnosed with MS or cancer. The first thing they say is, you know, I ate healthy, I exercised every day, I took such good care of myself, and I can't believe my body let me down. So there's most, most of the times there is a sense of betrayal. So I think in that regard, all diagnoses, you know, chronic or catastrophic is kind of similar. People feel very upset that their healthy body has betrayed them. And so there starts the um, difficulty with body image. So we always associate sexuality and vitality with good health and youth. So when uh, we, we start, we are diagnosed with an illness, what happens is that people start thinking, oh my goodness, I am never going to be sexual again. I'm never going to be 
you know, active again. Um, and, you know, it, it's really um, it upsets them tremendously. So what are some other ways that you see something like cancer impacting folks' body image? I mean, when I think of something like breast cancer, I imagine the potential physical repercussions, but it sounds like it starts much earlier with just the diagnosis. Yes, it starts with the diagnosis. I read one of the researchers talk about a state of disembodiment and a state of re-embodiment. So there are times when they feel like their body has betrayed them. They really don't like the way they look. They're depressed. And then there are days they feel like, okay, I have, I'm alive. I can, um, you know, um, enjoy myself. I can go out. I'm getting proper treatment. And so they go into a state of re-embodiment where they are feeling grateful for their life and, um, you know, feel like they can actually explore their body and sexuality in different ways. But then they may go to a, a, a reunion, um, a, a high school reunion, and then they may see other people and feel like, oh, you know, if only I did not have cancer, if only I did not have an illness, I would be better off. So they go vacillate between this, you know, feeling of embodiment and the disembodiment. So, you know, and the, and the side effects from treatment, I'm, I'm just at this point, I'm going to speak about the cancer, people affected by cancer, when they are experience a side effects such as hair loss, uh, weight gain, um, skin lesions, skin spots, and, um, you know, other side effects, it really affects their body image. You know, I've had patients, clients tell me sometimes, I don't feel like looking at myself in the mirror. And, you know, I remember getting, I, I work with a lot of cancer, um, uh, people are diagnosed with cancer. I'm, I'm, I would rather not use the term survivor because a lot, I also work with a lot of people who are in treatment because they're metastatic. So they uh, are undergoing treatment. It is not a disease that can be cured, but it's a chronic illness for them. Um, and so I refer to that. I, so I like to refer to this group as people diagnosed with cancer as opposed to survivors of cancer. Because you're working um, with people across the diagnosis spectrum. Yes, it, there's a huge spectrum. Um, and so, you know, these uh, folks are going through treatment on an ongoing basis. So they're experiencing the side effects. And so this really affects their sense of self as sexual beings because they do not. Most of the times people tell me I don't look like myself. I lost my eyebrows. I look like someone else. And I lost my hair and my hair is growing out in a different way. It doesn't look like me. So most of the times People just want to look like themselves before cancer, before the treatment. And what if that's not a possibility after their treatment? Well, most of the times I, um, you know, help people understand this whole concept of self-compassion. Like, you know, you know look at, looking at yourself and accepting your new body and your new appearance and being kind and compassionate to yourself. So that is really a big part of treatment when there are significant physical changes, because um, you know that is something that most people struggle to integrate uh, when you know they do not look the same. They've gained weight, um, and um, they're uh, you know 
face doesn't look the same, for instance, because they've lost their eyebrows and the eyelashes um, and their hair has grown out, you know, curly or it's, you know, gray, then, you know, I really believe that it's important to first help them embrace the loss and deal with the loss and speak about the loss. So it's a grieving process. It's definitely a grieving process. But most people, once you give them an opportunity to grieve, then, you know, kind of there's an end of the grief process. If you can take them through it and, you know, give them an opportunity to experience it, then they come out accepting their new body. I usually have people write a letter to parts of the body that they miss. For instance, in a breast cancer survivor or a testicular cancer, um, uh, you know, survivor, I would say, I would tell them, write a letter to that part of the body that you have lost to surgery and say goodbye to it. And, and, and remember all the wonderful moments you had with that part of the body. The first time it was touched, the first time you touched your body and all the excitement you felt with, with this part of the body. And then you write a new letter to the, the body that you just got you know, the reconstructed breast or the, you know, non-reconstructed breast. Um, And, you know, welcome this part of the body with compassion Mm. and promise to love that part of the body because it is keeping you alive and healthy. Oh, I'm not even having to write this right now. And I'm like tearing up as you're saying it, like imagining, imagining writing that it's, it sounds really, really painful, but also really powerful. It's a very cathartic experience, and um, uh, most people tell me that they experience tremendous amount of catharsis when they are writing these letters, and they definitely experience a lot of self-compassion after they have written the letter to their new bodies. Yeah. Um, I use this quite frequently. Going back to the the potential side effects, I know we were talking about maybe first emotional ones and then some physical ones. How do certain types of treatments impact sexual functioning? For example, like uh, getting erect or getting lubricated or um, things like that. That's a great question. Um, You know, all cancer treatments come with some sexual side effects. Mm -hmm. So, you know, most of the side effects are sexual because, you know, if there are scars, you feel self-conscious and you do not want to be sexual. And you do not want to show your body to your partner. So um, all side effects can be sexual side effects because of how they affect our sense of self. For instance, surgery, you know, it results in scars. It results in loss of body parts, you know, breasts, testicles, prostate, um, sometimes genitalia, um, sometimes vagina can be um, removed during surgery for cancer. Um, and, you know, sometimes it could result in pain and ongoing pain can really affect sexual desire. And yeah. heightened sensitivity is also a, a side effect of surgery sometimes because there are parts of the body that feel more sensitive and parts of the body that feel no sensation. So this can really affect people um, who are, you know, stimulated by, um, you know, um, testicular stimulation, for instance, if these testicles are um, you know, um, taken out during surgery. And the same could be true of 
um, you know, breast uh, mastectomy. And if someone is stimulated, is uh, enjoys foreplay through nipple play, they may really miss that sensation because reconstructed breast does not ex- feel the same way as uh, the breast that they uh, lose through surgery. Right. And radiation can result in burns. It can result in pain. And they can also experience heightened sensation and lack of sensation at the same time. And most people who undergo radiation experience extreme fatigue. And the fatigue is cumulative. So, you know, over time, they may feel more and more tired. And that doesn't lend itself to any sex play. And chemo is actually has its own um, side effects that can be pretty catastrophic for um, sexual activity, um, hair loss, weight gain, um, and uh, there could be a vaginal dryness. Mm-hmm. And in, in case of um, a prostate, you know, a prostate cancer survivors, there may be a decline in testosterone. And this could result in um, a lack of desire. Yeah. And it could also affect sexual performance. Sometimes they, they may have a hard time having an erection. And women who, who um, experience chemo could experience vaginal dryness. And the same sort of symptoms may also be true for um, uh, transgender uh, patients who are going through um, cancer treatment, um, depending on, you know, um, what sort of treatments they've had, they may experience similar sexual side effects. Um, And hormonal treatment, you know, um, estrogen positive breast cancer patients are uh, given uh, estrogen uh, suppressants. And that can affect arousal because it causes vaginal dryness. And um, men who are going through prostate cancer uh, treatment um, may uh, ex- may be given androgen deprivation treatment, which may then result in erectile difficulties, sexual uh, desire loss. It could also result in female pa- pattern weight gain, which can be very uh, difficult for people um, because it may really affect their sexual self-esteem. I think you you really highlighted something that's important to me that I sh- you know learned in part in your class, but that's this sort of like biopsychosocial approach to to sexuality. And so when I was asking like, well, what are some of the like sexual functioning aspects in my head? I was initially thinking physical, but I think it's important for listeners out there to know that like some things can impact you socioculturally or emotionally that can then have a physical impact. For example, if you're not feeling good in your body or you're nervous or you're anxious or um, you don't like the way you look, that can impact you physically. Absolutely. You've listened well in class. (laughs) (laughs) You you reminded me, you reminded me. So I'm I'm trying to be a good student here. You are a very good student. <laughs> Thank you. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Um, that's why I brought you on this podcast to affirm me as a student because doctoral work is hard. Um, but you mentioned something that struck me. And I think when I've had folks that I know who have gone through cancer treatment, a lot mm-hmm. of times they've just expressed, you know, such an intense tiredness and and really just yeah. like a fight for survival. You know, they're just trying to get through the treatment. They're just trying to get through the day. And I know that, I mean, this is no comparison, but I know that when, when I'm tired, I'm not really in the mood for sex. 
And so I wonder, like, are people going through treatment even thinking about sex or are they just in survival mode? Like, why is it important for us to consider the sexuality of someone who's fighting for their life? This is a fantastic question because I think um, a lot of times um, this is the common myth that when, when people are going through treatment that they do not think about sex. Yes, it is to some extent true when they're initially diagnosed, they are uh, focused on the treatment strategies. They're, they're focused on who do I call, you know, how, how do, do I schedule surgery? Do I choose this kind of reconstruction? Do it? You know, so they are really debating between different uh, treatment options. So that may be the time when they may not be thinking about sexuality, but when they're in treatment, they are, you know, sometimes they may be in a relationship and they may want to be, they may want to normalize their life because it has been through such an upheaval. They may want to experience, um, you know, kind of a sexual connection with their partner. Um, I'm talking about even hugging, cuddling, holding the many aspects of sexuality that may present itself just to feel like they are also healthy and they're also normal and not sick and unable to connect sexually with their partners. It sounds like that initial response of mine then is sort of more reflective of these like false cultural narratives that if someone's maybe not functioning or whether they're pregnant or young or old or have a disability or whatever, that we imagine that it's, that it means they're not a sexual person. And so with this, it's sort of like, oh, well, you're, you know, fighting for survival. You must be like so weak. Like, why would you even want to have sex? Yes. Yes. You know, this is a common misconception among um, healthcare providers as well, because um, I once treated um, a gentleman who came to see me after prostate cancer uh, treatment. And he uh, was really upset because his um, there was a little bit of shrinkage um, of his uh, penis length. And he was very upset about it. And he spoke to his, um, uh, you know, his uh, oncologist about it. And the oncologist told him, well, you should be glad that you're alive. Uh, You shouldn't worry about these things. So Um, it's like minimizing. Absolutely. His, uh, you know, feelings were minimized. And he was very upset about it because, you know, he, he really felt um, you know, very, very upset because he had not, before the surgery, he was not told that there would be any uh, genital shrinkage. And then when he saw that, he was upset and he wanted to know why he, um, you know, experienced it. And he spoke to his surgeon and the oncologist and both of them kind of dismissed his uh, concern. So that is based on the feeling that if you have cancer, you should just be fighting for your life and you really don't need to be thinking about sex right now. Those are things for people who are healthy. So this myth actually, um, you know, results in healthcare professionals minimizing uh, the need for people diagnosed with cancer to experience um, healthy sexuality. And or just lack of knowledge, like they're not being educated on what potential side effects are and how to communicate that with their, with their clients or patients. Absolutely. Medical schools and nurse, you know, even, you know, schools uh, where nursing uh, professionals are trained do not really offer a lot of courses on sexuality. So most physicians and nurse practitioners and other healthcare providers get very little training 
on uh, sexual adjustment of um, you know people who are dealing with different diseases. So they do not have a lot of things to tell them. First of all, they do not have enough time. They are you know they they can they are allowed at like maybe ten to fifteen minutes. So they within that time they do not feel like they have enough time to talk about sexuality. Secondly, they feel like they do not have the knowledge to speak to um, their patients about um, sexual health because they do not know anything a lot about it. Hey, slutty scholars, I wanted to just quickly share a discount code from our sponsors over at Dipsy. They are offering a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S and S. In this episode, we talk about redefining sex and ways to use fantasy and creativity during times of sexual change. Dipsy is a great example of that. It's an audio app full of short, sexy stories and guided sessions that are designed to turn you on and help you get in touch with yourself. You can use Dipsy as standalone fun time or as a warm-up for partnered play. They add new content every week, so there's always more to explore. And for listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash S and S. That's a 30-day free trial when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash S-A-N-D-S. Dipsystories.com slash S and S. Remember, the more you support our advertisers, the more we can keep the show going. Now, back to the episode. Going back to the desire for sex, I think something we talk a lot about here on the podcast is redefining what sex means. And I think Mm -hmm. when you were saying that there's a lot of ways that people would want to express themselves sexually, like, sure, maybe they don't feel like penis and vagina or some kind of penetrative sex because they're tired or dryness, but they still might want to kiss or cuddle or do something else. And so I wonder, like, have you seen partners who are afraid to touch their partner because they're going through treatment? Yes, very often. I, I work with couples mostly. And um, I, I have, a, I mean, at least 50% of my caseload um, is either cancer, uh, people diagnosed with cancer uh, with or without their partners. So I see, um, you know, couples who are really struggling to reconnect sexually. And most of the times they come in with this belief, it's all or nothing. You know, if I can't have intercourse, then why do anything? Um, and, you know, yeah, it's this hierarchy. Absolutely. So, uh, these are of course myths that are, um, you know, they've grown up with that, you know, sex is only intercourse and it's nothing else. So the biggest, um, you know, gift that I give them is I liberate them from that myth. And I tell them what sex can be so many different things. And I offer them the pleasure wheel, like all the different things you can do, the hugging, holding, cuddling, um, you know, um, oral manual stimulation and all kinds of options that you have. I usually refer to sex as a buffet table. I tell people to look at it as a buffet table. There are so many options. You know, of course, is only one of it. So you really do not have to just go towards that one thing. You could try all these different things. Um, so if there's one thing I want people to take away from me when they come into my uh, office for therapy, I want them to take that feeling that sex is like a buffet table. There are so many different options and you can enjoy as much as little and as many of them as you want. I personally love buffets. So that Mm -hmm. metaphor really works for me, but 
for other folks, how do you, how do you, I don't want to say convince them, but how do you help them see that the other options can be just as good and just as fulfilling or, or maybe not just as good, but like, you know, different and also fulfilling? Well, um, you know, I, I really think that because they do not know that sex means many other things, they have this message that is imprinted in their mind that sex equals intercourse. So education, providing them with education about all the options that they can engage in. And sometimes when they cannot have penetrative sex, I even suggest some um, uh, kink activities like bond, like bondage, blindfolding, um, and role plays. Um, and all of these can be extremely erotic. Um, and it doesn't always have to end in intercourse. So, and I also, I suggest to people to kind of, um, read fantasies, read fantasies to each other, share fantasies with their partner. All of these could also be very, very good way to bring in erotic energy into the relationship and not focus exclusively on intercourse, which may or may not be an option uh, due to physical limitations. What kinds of kink and fantasy things might you encourage someone to, to try if they've never, you know, gone into that arena before? Well, first of all, I try not to use the word kink because when people think of kink, they immediately think about flogging. They think about uh, things they saw in Fifty Shades of Grey and they get very anxious. And I try not to use that term. I try to say something like you can um, add some exciting um, new things. And then I kind of talk about you could, you know, kind of blindfold and I describe the activity without naming it. Um, and, you know, this is especially so with people who are extremely conservative mm -hmm. and who have never really um, uh, been very creative with your sexual activity. Then I kind of describe the activity. Like, what if you uh, blindfolded your partner and you brought different sensory uh, things to kind of excite your partner, like a piece of ice, a feather, silk cloth, and then what would happen if you could do that? Um, and what if you could, um, you know, play the role of a teacher and your, and your partner can be a student? What would that look like? It's basically power exchange and it's a kinky activity. But right. But instead of saying, hey, let's learn some BDSM, it sounds like you're introducing it as like a connected sensual thing without putting the title on it. So they're not overwhelmed. Absolutely. And, you know, some people, um, you know, will take to it right away and some people will not. So if they take to it and they're very excited about it, then I will, you know, kind of slowly introduce them to this whole concept of kink, BDSM and different ways they can enjoy it. And I will also refer to them um, to a sex shop in Philadelphia. Uh, some of our Widener students used to work there, and I and I used to actually refer to them to these people so they could um, get uh, you know the gear that they need because most of them don't want to go on the internet and order things, and they're worried about it. So um, you know, like Sexploratorium is a place where. We have educated sex educators there. So I usually refer them to a place like Sexploratorium where they can go and explore options that are available to them. 
Um, and some others may just stay with the basic um, role plays and they're happy with that. So that is fine too. But giving them a range of opportunities and giving them all this information sometimes opens the door to uh, many creative ways um, to use their body, which is limited in some ways, but um, imagination, but with imagination, they can really bring their um, erotic connection to a new level. I haven't worked much with folks going through cancer treatment or cancer survivors. And so something that I maybe compare it to for folks that I work with might be someone experiencing vaginal pain who's in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And maybe a lot of the focus ends up kind of being on their treatment. But then at the same time, there's a partner who's maybe feeling uh, frustrated or having trouble feeling sexual towards a person who's going through treatment. And I wonder, how do you work with partners of people either who are survivors of cancer or going through treatment if maybe they are feeling less attracted to their partner or maybe they are viewing their partner as more of a, um, I don't know, a person they need to take care of as opposed to be sexual with? You know, you said something that's really, really important. Most of the relationships are challenged because there's a, the, the partner often takes the uh, caregiving role. Mm-hmm. So the, the relationship between the couple gets altered and the cancer, uh, the person diagnosed with cancer then becomes the receiver of all kinds of services. But right. by bringing in kink, you could actually create a role play that reverses the whole thing. So mm-hmm. you can actually turn this, um, you know, kind of a caregiving role into something else. So, you know, for instance, um, they could actually uh, play the role of, um, you know, a doctor patient and reverse the whole thing. So the, the cancer, the person diagnosed with cancer can be uh, the physician and the, um, the partner who's been the caregiver can be the patient. Ooh, and, I like that. And you can actually twist things to really change the roles that people play in relationships and bring in a lot of sexual energy. That's so, amazing. Mm-hmm, I mean, yeah. in, that, in that same vein, what are some other maybe products or other tools or things that can enhance sexual activity for people diagnosed with cancer? There are so many new um, products that are available um, in, um, you know, for, for um, people diagnosed with cancer, um, that are new lubes that are uh, that do not have parabens or anything unhealthy. There are a lot of moisturizers, um, you know, applicators and moisturizers. There are vibrators that, that of different, um, you know, intensities. So people, you know, who are diagnosed with cancer can actually try something different intensities that works. Uh, vaginal dilators can be incredibly helpful to, you know, people with uh, who are suffering from uh, vaginal dryness and pain um, because, um, you know, dilating could really help the, um, the vaginal walls stay flexible. And, and for uh, people who don't know what that is, can you explain vaginal dilators? Vaginal dilators are, um, you know, graded so there are different size dilators um, that are shaped much like a penis um, and they can be inserted to, to into, into the, you know, depending on which size is suitable for them, they can insert it into the, um, into the vagina to help the body, um, 
you know, kind of adapt to a penetrative experience. And this is often also used by um, uh, male to female uh, transgender, um, you know, folks. It's, it's kind of like you work out any muscle. So you're like starting with, you know, smaller weights and then you're working your way up to bigger weights as you work on your fitness. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is a very good analogy. Um, and one of my favorite products is uh, a product called O-Nut. It is a, it is sort of a, um, a, it's a polymer blend rings. And these are wearable uh, rings that are, that can be stacked and it can actually be worn on the penis to control the depth of penetration. And this can be great for vaginal uh, penetrative sex and also anal penetrative sex. So um, these ONUT can, ONUT can actually control the depth of penetration, which I think is a brilliant idea. And um, I was actually giving a talk to a group of cancer um, uh, patients at a, at a host, cancer hospital. And one of the women came up to me and told me that she really enjoyed penetrative sex before she was diagnosed with gynecological cancer, um, vaginal cancer. And she had, and so part of her, um, vag, uh, the, uh, the vaginal canal was cut off uh, as part of the uh, treatment. So it was so shorter. It was much shorter. So her partner could not, so the the surgeon recommended that they not have penetrative sex again. She was in her 60s and the surgeon told her, well, you don't really need to do that anymore. But they really enjoyed it. And um, so I gave, I was giving a talk and I was talking about O-Nut. And soon after I gave the talk, the two of them came up to me and they asked me, do you think this would be a good thing for us? And I said, absolutely. Please try it. Because, you know, she, she has her... Um, her vagina was about two and a half um, uh, inches long. So, she, you know, so they could use, um, uh, you know, ONUT to, uh, you know, control the depth of penetration and still experience what they experienced before the surgery. Mm-hmm. So I was glad that I was able to offer them an option. I mean, in our conversation, you've already highlighted so many areas in which health practitioners or oncologists or whatever person on the care team have fallen short of providing support for survivors or cancer uh, people going through treatment. And I wonder what can healthcare providers do to, to better prepare their patients for adjusting after cancer or during cancer? I think they should receive, um, you know, training in uh, sexual adjustment after illnesses. They should learn about the sexual side effects. They should learn about options. Um, So I would recommend that I think all of them should become sexuality counselors uh, and get trained, get certified because they can provide them with, um, you know, permission, you know, so once you get trained in sexuality, even if it is uh, a short term course on sexuality, I think they will, they will really be able to help these patients because research shows us when healthcare providers start bringing up sexuality during the exams, Patients respond by sharing more information about their sexuality. And if they do not bring up sexuality, then 
patients don't speak about sexuality. So I think it would be wonderful if all healthcare providers could get trained in um, in sexual, um, you know, in sexuality. And I mean, this may be just a rhetorical question because part of what I highlight a lot on the podcast is just, you know, the cultural shame and stigma around sex, but why isn't it already part of training? Well, I think it is, um, it it could be, you know, the the cultural um, sort of um, uh, brutishness um, and, you know, thinking that sex is not necessary and it's not something that, um, that is, uh, that is important for people, especially when they're sick. Um, that it should not be prioritized. Um, and, you know, medical schools don't prioritize sexuality information on sexuality because they think that it's not serious science. We don't need, you know, you can always, and a lot of physicians and healthcare providers actually think they know enough about sexuality. Um, so they, um, so one of our students from Widener did a study and found that even though the physicians she interviewed did not have any training in sexuality. They believed they could actually treat people with sexual problems because why just because they're a doctor. Yes. They had this misconception. They could actually treat people um, with, um, uh, you know, sexual issues. So that sounds so dangerous and so irresponsible. It is. It is. And that is what results in um, the sort of um, stories I was telling you about, um, you know, invalidating people's sexual concerns and not giving them information about um, options for sexual activity. So, yes, it's a problem. I mean, I know that you are one of those people who provide some of those trainings. Um, what yes. are some things that you help teach practitioners about? Well, we have started a sexual cer- uh, um, a sex therapy certificate program at Widener, and I'm hoping that more and more mental health providers would come and um, take our courses and learn about, um, you know, sexual health um, and sexual counseling. And the same way, I really we are um, working on a certificate in, uh, uh, you know, s- sex counseling, and I'm hoping to train physicians and other healthcare providers. Um, in sexual health, because I think that would be a real service to, um, you know, people who are dependent on healthcare providers for information on sexuality. I was providing a a training once, um, like a more specific one, not a full certificate training. And I was talking to my OBGYN about it. And I was like, do you think anyone in this office, um, you know, would be interested? Would you mind sending it out? And He was like, well, I would be glad to send it out. And it seems like most of the people I work with don't care if they encounter like a sexual health problem that they can't treat, they'll just like refer them out or they like Mm -hmm. won't deal with it. And so it seems like there's sort of an apathy of, of learning more, or maybe they're just tired of going to school. Like I get that. (laughs) And it seems like there's a resistance. There's definitely a resistance. Um, And I think it's lack of prioritizing. They don't prioritize this as something that is really important. Um, and that, you know, their lack of knowledge really compromises the um, quality of life of their patients. Uh, that's so, 
I mean, I, I understand, and it's so upsetting. Yes, yes. I, I once ha- um, saw a woman who uh, was suffering from um, uh, pro- provoked vespulodynia. And, um, and for people who don't know what that is, it's um, um, pain a, during sex, uh, but yes. provoked meaning um, up, upon touch? Upon touch, yes. And um, the physician who saw her, the gynecologist, told her, oh, this is very difficult to treat. Um, and, you know, it really is not, and there are a lot of treatments, but he basically told her, this is very difficult to treat. So she came not only with the burden of the illness, of the condition that was compromising her sexual adjustment, she was also burdened by this uh, misinformation that catastrophized the situation even more for her. So, um, you know, so these are the results of not, of, of healthcare providers not educating themselves about sexuality. Wow. So going back to what you can teach to healthcare providers. What are some of the main things that you focus on to help help them help patients to reestablish sexual connection after something like a cancer diagnosis? Well, I think one of the most important things that healthcare providers can do without spending a lot of time is by giving them permission. Permission giving. You give permission to people who have been through treatment that it's okay to be sexual. You can be sexual. And the, you know, your sex life is going to be a little bit different, but it'll still be that you can still have a lot of fun with it. So giving them permission would in and of itself provide um, you know, such freedom to people to explore um, you know, different ways to be sexual. And the second thing they could do is to provide them with um, you know limited information, give them a little little bit of information about their health condition and sexual side effects and how they can manage the sexual side effects, and they can also provide them with um, you know specific suggestions. You know, for instance, if if uh, someone um, you know is having um, suffering from vaginal dryness, then they can provide them with information about products that they can use, moisturizers they can use on a regular basis, and, um, you know, lubricants that can really make, um, you know, sexual activity comfortable. They can suggest vaginal dilators. So these are all specific suggestions that they can provide that can really provide a lot of relief to these, um, uh, you know, people who are dealing with cancer. And how does focusing on some of those aspects of connection improve folks' quality of life after cancer? Well, um, you know, they are provided with information up front so they don't wait for a long time in distress about their, um, their, you know, sexual adjustment. So they know in the very beginning, it's going to change. Things are going to change. I'm going to have these side effects. I know that. But I know that I can be sexual because there are all these resources that I can use and sex is going to feel different, but it can, I can still be sexual. And I think that's, a, um, that's the kind of hopeful message I would like healthcare providers to, to give patients. I know that you can't maybe go into details because of you know, patient confidentiality, but I wonder if there's a, a potential example you could give of, of hope for people 
um, and what it can look like? Um, well, I, uh, you know, I, I, in addition to my private practice, um, I give um, talks to cancer survivorship groups. And very recently, I um, gave a talk in Chennai, India. I was invited by an oncologist to uh, give a talk to a group of um, breast cancer survivors and their partners. Um, and, you know, I saw, I met a woman um, who, um, you know, was very devastated because she was unable to have penetrative sex because um, she suffered from terrible uh, vaginal dryness and, uh, you know, uh, to some degree, atrophy. And so um, she thought that she would never be able to keep the interest of a partner. So she sent me an email after my talk and um, asked me, how can I be sexual without having intercourse? Um, and I sent her a lot of information about broadening the interpretation of sexuality and different things she can do to please her partner, um, including, um, you know, um, oral manual stimulation and, um, you know, caressing, holding, and these were all things that they never explored because they only practiced penetrative sex. So she told me, you have given me such a gift. You've given me so many different things I can do um, that, that could help us stay connected as a couple. So that's how we can really provide hope to people who are, um, you know, kind of feeling disenfranchised and feeling like they really cannot be sexual anymore and they are damaged goods. Give them information, give them options, and give them the hope that, you know, you can be sexual um, with a body that has been altered. Wow. Thank you so much. This has been so informative and helpful, and I'm so grateful that you took the time. And I want people to be able to find some of the research that you've done if they want to read more or if they're listening and they are a practitioner to come get, you know, do the certificate program. How can people um, get in touch and find some of those resources? Um, well, they can actually um, contact me through my Widener email, uh, which is um, on the Widener um, website. If they Google me, they can actually find my profile and they can find my email and they can send me an email about the new programs that we are putting together, the certificate programs, in, uh, which is already um, uh, in operation, the certificate program in sex therapy. And the one that we are working on right now is a certificate program uh, in sex counseling. So that would be, a I really will make sure to put to that link in the show notes for everybody. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Any parting words for our listeners? I just want uh, you all to know that we can all be, uh, advocates for cancer survivors and, uh, cancer survivors. I want you all to know that there's a lot of hope for those of you who want to be sexual um, and sex doesn't always have to be in a course. And, um, you know, once we broaden the interpretation of sex, uh, life can be a lot better. Yeah. And this is true for any kind of, I guess, body or functioning loss, whether it's age or a broken leg or a spinal cord injury or cancer, that there's a lot of options out there. And 
If you want to continue following Sluts and Scholars, we're on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars. You can always email us with questions or if you need additional resources at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. And if you are able, please come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash slutsandscholars. Thanks and talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you.